0: Those readers who are even superficially familiar with cellular biology will probably remember mitochondria from their seventh grade biology class. You will probably recall that the mitochondrion is an organelle responsible for manufacturing energy, it's the so-called powerhouse of the cell. You might even remember it looking like a cross section of a kidney with a squiggly loop inside, much like the picture on the website. If you haven't thought about the mitochondria since the seventh grade, then your teacher flat out failed to tell you one of the most exciting stories, I think, in biology. Before we get to the really cool part, let's make sure everyone is up to speed on how mitochondria work in our bodies, what they're for, and where they're found. We're going to pretend I didn't pay any attention to cell theory in middle school. First, where do I keep my mitochondria? When biologists talk about multicellular organisms, living critters with more than a single cell, they think about things in order of ascending or descending complexity. As an example, let's describe a dog from the most complex structures down to the most fundamental. At the most complex, we're looking at the entire dog. This is a complete multicellular organism. It has lots of parts that need to work together to make the whole thing that is a dog work. We say that the dog is the cumulative result of many cooperating organ systems, like the circulatory system, the nervous system, the digestive system. Looking deeper, we find that each of these systems is made up of multiple organs the stomach, the pancreas, the small and large intestine. All of these individual organs make up the more complex digestive system. Now, what are individual organs made of? Starting to get a little tricky, right? The answer is that organs are made up of individual tissue types, each with a function that helps the organ do its job. Tissues can be simple, consisting of just a single type of cell, but often have some added complexity that a single cell acting alone would not exhibit. In the heart, you have muscle tissue to contract and pump blood, but you also have fibrous tissue that makes up structures like the valves. Don't forget. Nervous tissues to electrochemically conduct rhythm signals to each of the different chambers, making your heart beat in time. Each different type of tissue is made from cells. The muscle tissue of the heart, for example, is made from cardiac muscle cells. Cells are the smallest you can get, any smaller, and the parts cannot survive alone. This is why we biologists say that the cell is the fundamental or most basic unit of life. This is a core principle of Cell theory. All in all, this is a pretty simple concept. Living stuff is made of cells. Let's stop for a moment, though, to think about the profundity of that last paragraph for a second. To you and I, it seemed obvious that cells built tissues. To organs, to organ systems, to organisms. This is easy. kid stuff. Yet, even a few hundred years ago, this knowledge was hidden, with even the most well-educated, We had no real concept of the smaller structures that led to tissues until the 1670s, after the invention of the microscope. That means the first five and a half thousand years of recorded human history came and went before a single person knew what a cell was. Take a moment to realize how easy it is to gloss over the importance of something so simple. Think about what it means to have such a firm grasp on a concept that eluded the greatest minds of two hundred generations of people. Think about the fact that just a few beads of glass led to the microscope that led to the evidence that led to cell theory. Glass beads had been available for thousands of years, and jewelers had been setting stone in fine alignment just as long. The only thing that stopped us from discovering cells and microorganisms sooner was that it took a little imagination and a little bit of curiosity to try looking through a perfect glass bead rather than at it. It took just one person to put the pieces together, and the world was changed. Ask for a moment in the profound effect is that even the silliest, the smallest of scientific inquiries has what happens if I look through these two last spheres? How much knowledge have we built up from that one simple question? Let's get back to track. Organelles are the small bits of machinery inside a cell. Most are ubiquitous. You will find cytoskeletal structures, regarding, uh, regardless of the cell type, uh, because all cells need a framework. You'll find ribosomes. These are the machines that read work orders from the DNA and produce the requested proteins. These are in every cell because all cells need to make proteins. There are also some specialized machines that go into specific cells. Pancreatic islet cells have special storage granules, which hold insulin. They store the hormone until your blood sugar increases the brain sends the signal to release insulin. The mitochondrion is a type of non-specific organ. They are found in nearly every single cell type in your body, because most all of your cells need energy to do their jobs. Depending on the type of cell, there can be more mitochondria, or fewer. Red blood cells have no mitochondria, because their function does not require a fuel source. A muscle cell will have many hundreds or thousands of mitochondria due to the high demand for energy. I think we're all caught up now. We all know that mitochondria are located in your cells as organelles. What then is it? What is this great, exciting, amazing fact about mitochondria? Oh, it's a good one. It's such a deep level fact that you aren't ready yet. We need to walk through one quick logic problem. And you'll see why the mitochondrion is about to blow your mind. Let's talk for just a second about how your cells work when they divide. It seems intuitive that your cells split in half in order to replicate. But what do they do with all the organelles? How do you get a second set of machinery to put in the new cell? Well, the cell just grows some new ones. Right? Sort of. All the blueprints required for making every last part of you are stored in your DNA, like a gigantic instruction manual or cookbook. Your cells have specialized in machinery that opens the DNA and reads how to make a new protein. Those proteins get bent and shaped like balloon animals into anything the cell needs. In this way, your cell can produce an entirely new set of organelles to populate the duplicate cell. So far, this is probably sounding obvious to you. Like you might have guessed, the cell just grows the new parts. Blah, blah, blah. Bored. Well, get ready, because this is subtle, and it may take a second to fully sink in. All of your cells contain the DNA blueprint for your entire body, every one of them. They can make everything they need, tiny, electrically controlled blood gates and nerve cells, and molecular ratchet mechanisms in your skeletal muscles. Your DNA contains everything that is required to construct you as a human from scratch, except your DNA doesn't contain the blueprint for mitochondria, the ubiquitous powerhouse for your cells, the refinery that turns oxygen and glucose into the fundamental fuel that your body uses, the organelle that makes fuel 15 times better than your body can do on its own, and without which you could not be a big, fast-moving, multicellular life form. Simply not in your blueprint. The mitochondrion at first glance is not just another one of your molecular machines. The mitochondrion is an invader of sorts, living inside every single one of your cells and supercharged your fuel production. Let that concept wash over you, because it is so important because I think it is so, so cool. Take your time. But... we aren't there yet. This goes... much deeper. Mitochondrion has its own separate DNA. It has its own internal machinery, just like your cells do. Mitochondrion is its own entity. And when one of your cells wants to divide, has to let the mitochondria know to make some copies for the new cell. Your body cannot make mitochondria, but it needs them to function. If you have a curious mind, you are probably already asking the next question, if you can't make any mitochondria, then how do babies get mitochondria in the first place? That is a really... It actually has a very simple and elegant answer. When non-biologists imagine the conception of a new life, there's usually some vagueness involved which adds a layer of mysticism. A lot of people probably imagine a sperm and an egg sort of coming together, the combination creates a flash or a spark. Maybe you think some chemical reactions happen, and the fertilized egg starts to divide and divide until it starts to look like a new baby. This is more or less correct, but it lacks an understanding of what exactly happens with that first cell. Luckily, using our microscopes, we can remove that mystical magical fog and look at exactly how it happens. The sperm and egg are both cells. Each one has a special shape and function, but they are still just normal cells, like any other, in each parent's body. They need all the requisite cellular machinery to function, just like any other cell. When your body wants to produce some sperm or egg, it signals the mitochondria to divide, just like in all the other cells it ever produced. An egg is a dormant factory. It contains one half of a blueprint and all the organelles, including the mitochondria, needed to start building an organism from the ground up. All the egg needs to start the factory up and build a human is a few more chromosomes, the other half of the blueprint. The sperm is able to donate the other half of the blueprint and little else. Sperm is tailor-made for its purpose. It uses every bit of energy it has available, and every single one of its mitochondria to run a powerful engine called a flagellum. By the time a sperm delivers its half of the blueprint to the egg, it has essentially burnt itself out. Once the egg integrates the DNA from the sperm, the cellular machinery is automatically turned on and dedicates itself to building whatever thing they have in their DNA blueprints. A new human in this case. All along the way, with every new cell formed, the mitochondria from the egg will replicate and provide the fuel to make it all possible. As a quick aside, this means that all of your mitochondria come from your mother. Your mitochondria will always be essentially 100% like your mom's and 0% like your dad's. This means we can take mitochondrial DNA from you and compare it to your great-great-great-grandmothers all following the maternal side, and it will be exactly the same. You are walking around with identical copies of the same mitochondria that were inside the cells of all your maternal ancestors, going back as far as you want to look. It is exactly like holding on to an heirloom passed down from mother to daughter for thousands and thousands of generations. Now, of course, there are some caveats to this, like the fact that random mutations sneak into the genetic code over time. The idea is still a profound one, I think. The mutations are actually pretty cool, too, since we can use them to determine things, like how many generations ago you and anyone else share a common ancestor. To clarify, uh, you and your cousin have a common ancestor two generations away. You both have the same grandmother. We can count the number of mutations to determine how long ago that common ancestor lived between two individuals, in this case, you and your cousin. Now, you might think to yourself, wait a second, mitochondria and a new baby come from the mother. Then how could the original mother have gotten mitochondria? Isn't this a chicken or the egg type of question? You, dear inquisitor reader, are onto a deep, deep question. and I cannot applaud that type of critical thinking enough. For this answer, we will have to go way back. We have to go much, much, much farther back than your question even implies. This exact question has been under investigation for more than a hundred years. Scientists started trying to come up with guesses about where mitochondria and their plant cell counterparts, the chloroplasts, could have come from since around the turn of the last century. There were observational similarities between the mitochondria and some types of bacteria. Many ideas were proposed, including one called the theory of symbiogenesis. The catch is, the scientific method requires you to test your hypotheses against observable evidence, and, at the time these hypotheses were proposed, no one knew how to do that. No one knew how an experiment could be designed to determine which theory worked and which were incorrect. It would be another 40 years before we had the knowledge and understanding to begin looking at the DNA evidence and to narrow down the guesses that didn't match the evidence. After years and years of hard work gathering data, it became more and more apparent that our mitochondria are related to various bacteria. Continuing to hypothesize, experiment, and test and guesses against the evidence, biologists were eventually able to prove a model of endosymbiosis as being the origin of our modern mitochondria. The way endosymbiosis works is another fairly simple and elegant solution to a seemingly complex problem. Based on microfossil and geochemical evidence, we can roughly date the emergence of early eukaryotic cells. These are the types you have, as opposed to prokaryotes like bacteria. These early cells evolved to live in a world where oxygen levels were very low they produced energy using the less efficient anaerobic, meaning without oxygen, methods. These methods are actually still present in your cells. The rising oxygen in the atmosphere over the millennia acted as a poison to this type of anaerobic life, as well as an opportunity for natural selection. At some point around this time, prokaryotes developed the ability to use the now abundant oxygen to convert glucose into energy and gained a significant advantage over the other organisms. This meant that there were lots of bacteria around, and that they were easy fishing for the eukaryotes. Eukaryotes would eat the bacterial cells, digest them, and turn them into energy, using the inefficient anaerobic method of energy production. This would have happened every day. just like one animal eating another. Then, one day, something went a little... To eat a bacterium, a eukaryotic cell floating around in the water will sort of engulf its prey. They have no mouth, so they just wrap around the food and form a little bubble of themselves into a simple stomach. Then, things get broken down and the pieces are turned into fuel. This is the normal process. One day, that process didn't work exactly right. We can imagine the thin and delicate invagination of the outer cell membrane of the eukaryotic hunter as it closes in. We can imagine the life and death struggle as the predator engulfs its prey. The small bacteria, which have learned to metabolize with oxygen and become so abundant to our hunter, are a common meal. The battle is over quickly. And the eukaryote begins to ingest the bacterium. To so that this point, that something goes wrong. For whatever reason, the bacterium is not digested and manages to end up in the cytoplasm, the liquid interior. Of the large eukaryotic cell. This may have happened frequently, there is no way to say, but the bacterium accidentally ending up in the cytoplasm of the eukaryotic cell was important. Then, the bacterial cell had to be well suited to live within the eukaryotic cell. Also, the eukaryotic cell had to be incapable of, or unwilling to, attack or remove the now internalized bacteria. Finally, the new union must have provided some advantage. We can guess that the initial advantage was the sharing of the abundant fuel created by the bacteria, coupled with the protection of living within the eukaryotic cell. This event is the heart of the answer to the last question. If we trace back from mother to mother going back a billion or two years, Before we were humans as we know ourselves today, before we were early hominid ancestors, before we were small, furry, warm-blooded animals hiding under the earth, before we were reptiles or amphibians, before we were fish with bony jaws or not, before we were primitive ocean dwellers, before we were masses of floating cellular colonies, before we were even chains of cells working together, if we trace back mother to mother billion or two years then eventually we will trace directly to that hunter eukaryotic cell that didn't quite eat a bacteria your direct ancestor traceable on your mother's side single cell and mother to a new era in the history of life on our planet this single cell gave rise to you and to every single animal or bug that has ever lived and every single one that ever will This type of understanding of the physical world is profoundly beautiful to me. Think about the journey of understanding we have come through, from ignorance through increasingly sophisticated layers of clarity. Each step is small, and that requires easy-to-understand, tangible and testable evidence. This is what makes science special, what sets it apart from philosophical proofs. The side effect of this process is a shift in our collective perspective, moving from a totally egocentric universe to the realization that we are not the creatures we imagine ourselves to be, alone, unique in the center stage. We have shared our evolution for a billion years hand in hand with the symbiotic bacteria, without which we would still be those simple, single-celled hunters. As surely as you are the eukaryotic cells in this story, you too are the prokaryotic endosymbiotic cells. I described them earlier as alien invaders, but that frame of reference stemmed from a lack of knowledge of deeper understanding. Alone, your cells could not function as they do today. You, the eukaryotic brain cells and muscle cells and liver cells You are nothing unless you are also the mitochondria. You are two organisms, and one at the same time. I think this is important to understand, to see ourselves, our species, as a single tiny twig on the vastly diverse tree of life, and to truly understand how we got there. Not to guess, or to blindly assume but to be willing to follow the evidence, regardless of our initial beliefs. As a result of our prolonged symbiosis, the mitochondrion has indeed lost its ability to survive without us. In fact, it does not well resemble a bacteria any longer. Much of its original DNA has been transferred over to the main blueprint of our nuclear DNA. The long years of evolution have essentially merged two species into one. With that in mind, think of the millions of species of bacteria living now inside your gut. Already you are dependent on some of these to allow you to digest your food. Might some of these someday be integrated into our very essence like the humble mitochondrion? One last thought. The universe we live in is filled with stories and mysteries, some already told, but most still waiting to be discovered. If this story excites or interests here, then it would suggest that you are already perfectly suited to become a scientist, a storyteller of the universe. Anyone who is curious at heart can be a scientist, if they're willing to put in the time and effort. All of us are born scientists, so we experiment constantly children in order to understand the world. Many of us are taught to suppress that curiosity as we grow up. We do not ask questions when we fear being foolish. Don't do that. Ask questions until you understand whatever it is you don't understand. If the teacher tells you they need to move on, let them. But come back after class and ask questions until you understand. If they can't help you, ask who can Look your questions up in the library. Always ask a librarian after to research topics you know nothing about. Ask questions like an annoying little kid, because that's how you learn. Eventually you might ask a question no one can answer. At that point, you're probably standing on the cutting edge of scientific investigation. When you get there, don't stop. Keep asking questions. Keep looking for answers that make sense. You never have to take an answer to a question on faith. You can always understand the basic principles and test them against what is observable. Why not start now? Check on the facts behind the story you just heard. Don't just take a This has been Occasionally Thinking, and I'm Matthew Jacobs. The music you heard in today's episode was written and produced by bensound.com. You can find more of their work and all the titles from this podcast at www.bensound.com.